If you're a dog owner, safety and welfare for your pet are of the utmost concern. But there are so many so-called experts out there that many of us don't know where to turn to get the expert advice that we need. Welcome to Taming the Wild in Your Dog with noted dog expert and author Brian Bailey. In this program, we give you the tips you need to connect with your best friend with the most practical advice. Now, here's your host, Brian Bailey. Welcome. Welcome, everyone. Have you ever sat there and looked at your dog and wondered, I wonder what would happen if I wasn't around anymore? We know what would happen in our house. <laughs> I was going to say, I wonder that about dogs in general, but my dogs, I pretty much know that answer. You no, know, well, you know, I have clients all the time. And unfortunately, sometimes in what I do, I have to recommend that you rehome your dog because the situation just is not going to work out uh, in their current pack that they have. And one of the biggest concerns that comes up is, I don't know, I, I kind of get that, but will my dog be okay without me? So this is an interesting show because that's exactly what it's about. It's bye-bye Bowser, meaning we're bye-bye, we're gone. It's what happens uh, to dogs if suddenly humans disappeared. If we disappeared off the planet Earth, I'm telling you what, with what we're doing to the planet Earth, I don't think that's a very far off or uh, an unconceivable notion that that could occur, especially with climate change, everything that's occurring with, uh, yeah, Mother Nature can only tolerate us humans for so long. And when that happens, uh, yeah, it's bye-bye to us. No wonder we're doing a lot of uh, extra terrestrial type uh, exploration. We want to go to Mars. We want to be able to see if do we have another place that we can go? Is there a rest stop along the way or anything of that sort? Because we could disappear. And if we do, what would happen to our dogs? What if dogs are only these humans that disappeared and dogs are still around? Well, that's a pretty neat uh, concept and can be a little bit uh, apocalyptic and a little bit scary when you think about it. But I came across this article, and it was in the Time Magazine, a special edition on time, How Dogs Think. And this was a very well-done article, courtesy of Markham Hyde. And the title was, uh, How Dogs Would Fare Without Us. If humans disappeared tomorrow, domestic dogs would have to call on their wild side in order to survive. <laughs> kind of like that team, the wild and wild side. <laughs> uh, I won't go into that story back in my old Navy days there. But anyway... So it was really well done, and they broke it down. What would happen to our dogs? And they broke it down in, in periods of time. And the first one was the first years. If dogs are suddenly thrust into a Hunger Games-style competition, and that's exactly what it would be, it would be Hunger Games. I mean, everything, life at its most fundamental level is really can be described as nothing more than an exchange of energy for more energy. Everything is about food. You and I were just kind of joking around the other day, Joshua, when I said, you know, I think all of our relationships with our dogs is really just nothing more than a gastronomic type relationship. It's always about <laughs> food, food, food. You watch any survival show, it's always about food, food, food. Anything and everything is about food, food, food. It is always about all, food. All behavioral issues that people deal with are typically instinct behaviors that are associated with somehow in a way gaining food. Yeah. So the, they say in the first couple of years, that's exactly what it would be. Super competition for food. And they, they, it doesn't look very well for certain types of dogs that we currently have. They, they say extreme body portions that we've bred into the species over the ages would make some of them ineffective hunters. Now, these would be your large dogs. Imagine a 200-pound mastiff having the only food that's available is a jackrabbit. 
uh, it's, it's not, not going to get. It's it. not going <laughs> to work out well. So we have dogs who mention a basset hound. I sure hope that you can find mice. I hope you can scavenge because you're certainly not going to chase down an antelope or a gazelle. Uh, so yeah, as some of our extreme body proportions would make ineffective hunters on the large size, but on the other side, uh, the very, very tiny dogs like Chihuahuas, Yorkies, Morkies, you name it, would wind up on the other side of the predator-prey equation. In other words, they would soon become poop. Uh, I hate to say it, they're going to become lunch for a larger animal. And I know you're sitting there looking at your Morkies and you're thinking, oh, no, would they make it? I'm not. They I, would not make it. I know that for a fact. <laughs> well, it's, uh, yeah, they're, yeah, no, ours would not make it. No. Uh, I think if Poe had to go one day without a belly rub, that would, she'd be belly up and uh, for, for good, for all time. <laughs> but uh, Dr. Raymond Peretti, a professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Kansas, says large breeds, are, not only would they be ineffective hunters, but breeds like Newfoundlands, Mastiffs, and St. Bernard's would die off very quickly because their organs are too small for their body mass. He says because of this, they already have a shorter than average lifespan, even in the safety of our homes. So, wow, uh, not good news for you guys. And Bulldogs, forget it. The first wow. generation, the only generation that is alive right when all the humans disappear is the only generation they'll ever be. They will become extinct because they can't whelp naturally. Their heads are too large to pass through the birth canal. So unless bulldogs learn how to do a cesarean section to other bulldogs, it's game over for bulldogs. So that's going to be a real quick uh, exit from the planet Earth for that particular breed. So once they kind of went through that and they talked about who might have a fighting chance, who won't have a fighting chance, and they, they nailed the, the, the immediate problems right off the bat with being too big or too small or being unable to whelp naturally, they said, well, who would survive? And they believe that dogs that have the more recent wolf ancestry would do best. And that happens to be Spitz dogs, Malamutes, Eskimo dogs, Huskies. Although I'm, I'm sorry, Takani, love you, buddy, but you're not going to make it very long. He is <laughs> definitely. I think the Morkies would outlast Takani. Yeah, it's <laughs> worth noting that it's the best of these breeds. <laughs> <laughs> not just Maybe breeds. it is. He's not going get, to get by on those looks, I'm telling you. Uh, but they say, yeah, Malamutes, Eskimo dogs, Huskies, Akitas, any other Spitz dogs. Why? Because of they are more aggressive. Uh, they have large bodies, but not too large. And also, the males of these breeds have retained a good bit of their wolf paternal instincts, whereas most male dogs of other breeds have not, be, have not because we humans take care of the puppies. But these particular breeds still retain some of that, hey, out in the wild, it's mom and dad that take care of the cubs, not just mom. But today's male dogs, so many of them, hey, once I uh, be create the puppy thing, I'm out of here. I'm gone. So it's up to you to take care of them if you're the female dog, not me. So they say that would help them to, of course, reproduce and to proliferate um, because now you'd have two taking care of the young pups versus just one, just being the female. They also say that dogs that have held on to some of their ancestral hunting abilities, like border collies, cattle dogs, and hounds. You said, I think, just last week that your hound would be the dog yeah, yeah. that would make it. Yep. Uh, nearly all of these breeds are a good size for hunting and killing prey, and they require less food to survive than the larger breeds. 
you know what? I look at our cattle dog and I think, okay, he, he has a good chance. I think he would make it for sure. Yeah. He would last until a ripe old age, I I believe, because he, he can be very aggressive when he needs to be, but he's a darn good hunter and he can chase anything and, and he is fast. And he's smart. Smarter than a lot of people I know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, and that comes up here, and um, you know, we'll talk about that uh, because in this article, many experts were called upon. There was uh, Dr. Raymond Peretti. Uh, there was also Mark Beckoff. He's a professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Colorado. Emeritus, he is. Uh, so he's retired from that, but he still gives a lot of input, and he does write a lot of articles for Psychology Today and, and other publications. And he argues uh, that favorable conditions for survival depend more on intelligence and skill set than on the breed. He says, to quote, I think it would really come down to the individual dog and its environment, its experience, and its cognitive skills. Some dogs are good foragers, some are good hunters, and some are just really crafty and street savvy. Counting out any dog based solely on its breed is wrongheaded. And I agree to a certain point because, again, I, I don't care how crafty and street savvy the bulldog is, it's game over. You, you simply will not produce any offspring. Uh, so there are, and I think that the very, very tiny dogs, again, are just ill-equipped to deal with this type of a scenario. They depend so much on humans. I, I think that they will become prey very quickly, even for other dogs. Uh, it'll, it'll come down to that. So they, they won't have an issue with, with killing the small dogs. And one of, one of the trainers the other day mentioned my Malinois would probably do all right. And I was like, no, not a chance in heck because she can't hunt properly without giving away her location. She's so vocal <laughs> and whiny and barky that she wouldn't be able to catch a darn thing because they would know that she was coming a mile away. Yeah, you know, she has such a high metabolism. Yeah. She would perish after yeah. one day of right. not eating. Yeah. <laughs> well, then again, think about some of the hounds. Yeah, they bay. Uh, they were trained to bay, and now it's become more of a genetic uh, input uh, that they have to allow the hunters to know where they are to locate them. So now, if you go, hey, 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 I'm coming, I'm coming, <laughs> hey, I just don't think that's going to work out so well. You might have to learn. Hey, there's a time in which you need to whisper. Don't be yelling your head off all the time. But uh, I do believe, you know, you can never, just like we always say, you can't compensate for stupid. Uh, this scenario here, definitely any animals that were not able to think you know, on their own four feet, if they were not able to problem solve, if they were not able to recognize, hey, where are certain locations that give me food now, which are the ones I should not waste energy traveling to, so on and so forth. Yeah, no, no doubt they, they would be gone. But again, as it moves on through the article, all the scientists are in agreement that the dogs that do survive would likely form groups and work in concert. Early gangs of dogs would form alliances to find or catch food. And according to Mark Durr, the author of How the Dog Became a Dog, a uh, very good book if you like that stuff. Uh, if you don't, then it's ambient for you. You can take it and you'll fall asleep in no time. But I thought it was a very, very well done book. And I have referred to it many times and many things that I've written and, and done on, uh, on TV and, and radio and so on and so forth. So I highly recommend it for anyone who's interested in the history of dogs. He says initially they would be more like coyotes, which come together to hunt bigger game, but are also capable of solitary hunting. And I agree. They're not going to just go right back to being a wolf quickly. 
This is going to take time. They're not used to living in that type of a pack. They're used to living in a pack full of bipeds and so on and so forth. So it's going to take a little bit of time and they're going to disperse out and they're going to look for uh, food and scavenge for food. And you'll, I think you'll see them forming alliances like they say, because we recently saw some stray dogs and, you know, not that we don't ever see them, but it seems like a lot lately. And we see them in groups of two and three. You, it's rare to see just a dog by itself, They're typically in a small group. You know, along with that time, one of the main, I think, factors that's going to encourage the, these dogs to start making more sophisticated um, groups is the more they start to resemble each other uh, physically. You know, once they're able to start interpreting each other better, they start to communicate more easily just um, on a, just a, the moment they meet, they're able to understand one another. That will become allowing them to make um, more sophisticated groups. Yeah. And that's a good point because the article really didn't talk or hit too much on that area there. Imagine the dogs that we have today, even Poe, for example, one of our Morkies. What happens if she doesn't get groomed? Now the hair grows up from her muzzle. Now she's blinded. She can't mm -hmm. see. What about all the dogs who require grooming to trim the hair around their eyes or pull the hair back? They can no longer do that. And then on top of that, you know, it's going to become matted. Uh, with everything from blood to mud, you name it. And now all of a sudden, I'm walking around in blinders, and that is not good. There's a reason why dogs learn with their eyes first. First, again, these wolves have to be able to see their prey. They can smell some of it, and they can smell uh, small animals that are underneath the subnivian space, of uh, the, that little space between the snow and the earth itself. But for the most part, they're going to use their eyes actually more than their nose to locate prey. And then once they do see the prey, well, then they're going to track it like a laser-guided missile and be on top of that. That's true, because when Poe's fur grows too long and she can't see well, she doesn't even like to go outside at night. She's afraid. Yeah. So now imagine all these dogs. And of course, even without the hair consideration, we have dogs that currently are unable to interpret the signals of other dogs simply because they don't have a tail. Now, all of a sudden, are you a friend or are you a foe? You have dogs who can't growl or are actually not growl, but show their teeth mm -hmm. because they have too much of a flesh on their muzzles. You have dogs whose eyes are, they can't look askew. So therefore, they look like they're always staring back at the other dog because we've morphed their, their heads to be in, a, in such a way that their eyes are off at an angle, so on and so forth. We currently already have communication skills. So yeah, there's no doubt that some dogs will avoid other dogs simply because I don't understand you. I don't get you. I don't know if you're a friend or if you're a foe. So I'm just going to try and make it on my own. Mm -hmm. And I will come across some dogs that I do get, and we will form small alliances in the beginning. But over time, that's, it's going to weed all of that out. The, the weak will perish, strong will survive, the fast and crafty will all survive. And in this article, it goes from those first early years to now 50 years after humans. And the first problem they point out is this. So if these dogs survive for 50 years without us humans, here's a major problem, and I absolutely agree. There are many large predators that reside in North America. There are bears, there are wolves, there are mountain lions, and there are some really large coyotes. And they, for the most part, have been living on the periphery of the world because they've been afraid of mankind. They've been pushed out. But you let humans go away, and like a contracting big circle, it's going to contract 
very quickly. Hey, the humans are no longer living here. I'm going to go check out that spot. I'm going to claim that territory. I am going to go wherever there's the greatest amount of food. So you bet that circle would contract immediately and all the dogs that were occupying that space because that's where they were living before the humans just disappeared would suddenly be dead right in the bullseye, right in the crosshair of these large animals. Um, And then uh, so they asked uh, Alan Weissman, who's the author of The World Without Us, and he said that dogs, uh, again, they would survive initially because they outnumber those large animals that live on periphery. They, they do. There's a numerical advantage that they would have that would help them hang on for a while uh, until the proliferation of the other big aggressive animals would catch up with them. Uh, they, he said that dogs would have major competition for food and they would be hunted themselves. If there's a battle between a dog and a wolf, the wild animal wins all the time. And I'm going to say that with absolute certainty as well. I don't care what kind of dogs we have created. It doesn't matter. There's no dog that I know of today that walks this planet that stands a chance against a wild wolf. There's just no chance. And Weissman doesn't believe that all the dogs should be wiped out though. He said those dogs that happen to be already residing on an island stand a much better chance of survival initially. So those that are on Hawaii, Wow, imagine that. You got the whole beach to yourself. <laughs> you got no humans. You got no traffic. You've got beautiful Hawaii all to yourself. That sounds like paradise. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, can, can you just leave a couple of humans, uh, not take everyone? Uh, can I just vote and be one of those on Hawaii? Uh, and they say in Australia and other islands, the dogs would do fairly well at first. But then again, here's another problem with islands. Food. Food. You have only limited amount of food. And if that food is not being regenerated because you're killing off all the animals who could regenerate that food, then you're going to have a major problem. You're going to run out of food in a real hurry. Uh, And he says, uh, very apocalyptic, he just says flat, flat out, but most of our dogs just aren't going to make it. Okay, so I mean, it just it just goes down the line. Uh, but then they, they add a couple of other things in there. And Dr. Peretti goes back to saying that, you know, we've worked for years and years. We have painstakingly engineered all of these different breeds, 300 different breeds. And he says, say goodbye to that. In other words, if you've been working on breeding collies or double doodles or Aussie doodles or so on and so forth, it's over. The, there will no longer be certain breeds. It's all going to morph and come down into one type of a creature. Those are going to go away. And they say that the biggest reason for that, that dogs are interfertile, meaning they have no hangups when it comes to reproducing with other breeds. The dogs that survive would become mutts within a short period of time. Uh, And then Mark Durr goes on to say that after the initial shakedown period, the early years when the poorly equipped dogs would perish, he says he believes that once they start to shake down and start to morph into more of a consistent type animal, he believes that they could do very well uh, because they would be able to take advantage of that, that wolf ancestry and start to replicate what they do uh, by, number one, their reproductive cycle would drop down to just one time per year, whereas dogs will reproduce twice a year and have two uh, reproductive cycles. Dogs that only have will go back to having one, uh, the same as coyotes and the same as wolves. And without people around to feed them and optimize their health, dogs would eventually revert to that single cycle simply because 
I can't take care of all of these puppies and they would have fewer offspring. And again, that would actually bode well because I'm not having, I'm not walking around pregnant all the time and I'm not having to stay near a den all the time taking care of these young pups. Uh, and they all agree, and this is the biggest, one of the biggest takeaways on this thing, that all the dogs, and these are all the scientists that they interviewed, all dogs will have formed. Now, this is 50 years after humans leave the earth. will have formed packs with close-knit hierarchical social structures seen among wolves. They would have higher and lower ranking animals. You know, this is, uh, we preach this all the time. That instinct that governs their behavior, it has not gone away. It is still there. And all it will take is a reason for it to come straight back to the top, bubbling back to the top. It just takes some selective pressures, uh, take the absence of humans and it's called incentive. Hey, you want to stay alive? We have to change a little bit of what we do. And Dr. Pretty even goes on to say that within five or so generations, only five or so generations, they would have wolf-like body sizes, if not appearances. All right. And then finally here, the article finally said, Hundreds of years after humans, hundreds of years later, what's it going to be like? Well, they still think that dogs, some dogs will still be around because dogs are adept at forming alliances. And they say that's a skill that they would not lose. They say, just look at the relationship that they formed with people and how because of that, they've kind of just taken over the world. There are just dogs everywhere. So they say that's a skill that is so deeply embedded in them currently that it would not go away in hundreds of years. It would go away in a few thousand years, but not in just a, in just a few hundred years. Uh, they say that dogs could prove to be very adaptable and possibly form alliances with large cats, you know, as what was observed by a team of ecologists in Kenya's uh, Nairobi National Park in 1960. And, and I know this story, and it's basically when cheetahs hunt, uh, their number one enemy by far are jackals, because jackals will chase after them. And when they make a kill, the jackals will harass the cheetah to run the cheetah off of the kill so they can eat it. But in Nairobi, this was just something that was rare and it was just, it, it was seen and they actually documented and filmed it. The cheetahs and jackals seem to have formed some sort of alliance to such a point that the cheetahs would only eat a portion of the kill and leave the rest of the kill for the jackals. And the jackals in turn or now, whenever there was a herd of gazelles, they would go to the periphery of that herd of gazelles and they would start barking and running and essentially distracting the gazelles. So they didn't notice the cheetah that was stalking them. And so therefore, most of the hunts became very successful because the two worked together. Wow, pretty fascinating yeah, that is stuff. Absolutely amazing. You know, so and they say there's no doubt that that this would probably happen again, that you suddenly have these dog or mutt-like creatures, wolf-like looking creatures, forming alliances with big cats. Because they say cats are ambush hunters, and they are, whereas dogs are pursuit hunters. And Mark Durr says, uh, I could see groups of dogs running big game into a trap sprung by the large cats. I can see that. Yeah. You know, you see some of that today, even with, with dogs and cats and how they kind of interact. I, To me, I can definitely... That would be for sure. What is the likeliness that these dogs would also start, you know, crossbreeding with some wolves? I mean, that's not even unheard of today. So there's a good chance that dogs just might carry on survival just because they are able to start 
breeding with wolves. Yeah. Oh, there's high likelihood between that coyotes, you name it. And then of course, then that will breed into something else. That's why they're saying in hundreds of years from now, uh, they believe in, and I'll just kind of wrap this up because it kind of answers that question yeah. there, that no doubt physical changes will occur. Mark Durr believes dogs will end up with a houndy pit bull type appearance. Shortened nose of a pit bull with the graceful long legs of a hound. Probably be about 50 to 70 pounds in weight. Big enough to be fearsome and fast and rangy, but not so big that it wouldn't be able to sustain itself. I agree. So in other words, wolves would become this. Mm -hmm. Coyotes would become this. Dogs would more likely become this. He says the only difference would simply be because uh, of changes in their fur due to their climate. You may have a little bit of a longer snout, hence the Spitz breeds, a triangular face. Spitz uh, is German for pointed. So more of a pointed ears, more of a pointed muzzle. But for the most part, they're going to be about the same animal. It just depends on whether these animals are occupying an Arctic region right. or their subtropical type region. But other than that, you know, the... It is believed that the dog and the wolf were one creature, you know, many, many eons ago, 40, 60,000 years ago. We definitely know it was less than 100,000 years ago just because of mitochondrial DNA. Uh, but at one point, they were the same creature, and it would just be like a full circle going right back. They suddenly, No one knows what that creature was. That creature could have been this thing right here, that houndy pit bull type appearance with the shortened nose of a pit bull and the graceful long legs of a hound. It could have been that. Uh, they believe more of the spitz look just only because most of these animals were living at that time. Most of the fossils that they found and the evidence that they found support that these animals lived in more of a northern hemisphere, mm-hmm. not the subtropics. So... Yeah, it could be. You know, you, the whole alliance earlier that we were talking about, it kind of brings up a point I was talking to Kira about before the show. And I was half joking when I said it, but now I'm more <laughs> half serious. Um, you know, if they are able to make alliances with other species like cats, then it would, it would, you would be able to believe that they would be able to make alliances with each other and use each other's skill sets to their advantage, where, you know, maybe in, 15 years, you see border collies hurting animals or, you know, hounds tracking animals, the border collies hurting the animals, and then the pit bulls taking the animal down, you know, and it, <laughs> they kind of work in tandem with one another to, to use their skill sets of how we bred them. But well, they, very interesting. you know, they have proven that they can do it with another species. They've done it with us. Yeah. yeah. You know, and they have definitely have formalized us here. Uh, but no matter what, they do believe that without humans, dogs will survive. All right. So that was all kind of nice to know and very interesting to talk about. But at the end of the day, what does this mean for dog owners? What does it mean? I think number one, it immediately brings to bear because this, again, this scenario could occur. As far out as it may be, if we really care about dogs, I've been griping and you'll hear me complain about the breeding that's occurring right now. Um, And I'm not the only one. I think that we we have to start really trying to breed animals that are more capable of living without us. We have to bring them back to where they used to be. It's sad when you watch a dog we that can't even sit properly because of the way its body has been made. You know, we have animals with upside down brains. We have animals who won't live very long because their organs are too small. If that isn't enough to say, stop it, stop it. How about this scenario right here? Those animals, they don't stand a chance. They're gone. They're gone. 
So why, I, I know that for, for hundreds of years, if not thousands, you know, just depending upon research and archaeological evidence and that you can find, you know, we've exerted genetic and behavioral control over dogs to enhance their value and functionality to us. But what we've done is uh, we've created animals that really honestly and truly depend on their entire survival on us, everything on us. And are you really doing that as a favor? It, you just, it, it just strikes this selfishness. Mm -hmm. Creating a dependent creature. That, it yeah. seems very selfish. Yeah. So again, uh, I think if anything, the takeaway from this is, what can we do? What can we do a little bit better? If not for the sake of the fact that your dog can't even physically move around or is incapable of thinking about anything other than just one little subject, what can we do better to make the species better? Because doing that makes us all better. It, it certainly does. So me, I, I just don't like it. I don't like some of the changes that we're seeing in the breeding, in our race to create the new designer breed, the one with the coolest name. Hey, what about the coolest chance of surviving? That's what I would really rather say. All right, guys, we're going to take a two minute break and then we're going to come back here. We've got questions to answer. And as always, we have some good ones and some deep ones and complex ones. So let's have a lot of fun with those. We're going to take a two minute break and we'll get back and get answered them. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you ready for a broad look at everything to do with the world of sports? If so, tune in to the Mike Abadir Show. It's a unique perspective to the connections between sports and business. Host Mike Abadir has negotiated numerous deals in the NFL. Along with co-host Gino Bacola, Mike will bring his expertise, discussion, and some terrific guests to the airwaves. Listen live for the Mike Abadir Show every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. After years of waiting, there's a radio show for shotgunning enthusiasts worldwide. Tune into Marty Fisher's Wing and Clay Nation for the very best in wing and clay shooting talk. Join Marty and his guests as they bring you hunting and shooting information that you can use. So whether you're a beginner or a seasoned pro, this show can be your go-to source for wing and clay shooting information. Listen live every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific for Marty Fisher's Wing and Clay Nation. Pull on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Taming the Wild and Your Dog. To reach the program today, send an email to brian at tamingthewild.com. Now, back to the show. And some people have sent questions to brian with a Y at tamingthewild.com. And we appreciate that. We appreciate you guys tuning in. 
again, that's what we're here for. We are here to provide you with information that we think is valuable, information that's just good for thinking every now and then, just, just kind of to reflect on what can we do and, and do better. And of course, we're always here to uncover any sort of BS that we see that floats down the wire every now and then. We're here for you. So now we have some questions and some of those were written in. Here, let's do it. Yep. So this one was left over from last week. Unfortunately, we didn't get to it. And it's from Tiffany. And she says, I believe my Weimaraner, Bella, has some separation anxiety. No matter the time I'm gone, she's overwhelmed when I get home. I've ignored and she gets mouthy with me. I pull my fingers up and cross my arms and she barks incessantly. I'll turn my back and carry on and she'll circle in front of me and bark for attention. What else can I do to extinguish that? Okay, well, I'm going to go right off the bat to the comment that she believes her dog has some separation anxiety. Okay, not to split fur. All dogs have some separation anxiety. They're social creatures for a reason. Now, then there's levels of separation anxiety that become problematic or are abnormal. How does Bella do? When you're gone, because now we're, we're only talking about one dimension here, when Tiffany returns home. But how does Bella do in her absence? Because if Bella is fine while Tiffany is absent, it's only when she returns. This could be a greeting ritual that the animal stress response is raising so quickly, so high that she reaches an uncontrollable state. Um, but regardless of that, because the only reason why I ask that is because if we do have a problem while Tiffany is away, then yes, we do have real separation anxiety and we could have an issue that needs to be addressed all the way, not just uh, from the one aspect of my returning home and now it's symptomatic because you're right here in front of me. But anyway, so that being said, there was a couple episodes ago in which we talked about jumping. You know, the research that was done and we, we all kind of laughed because so many times you receive it advice that says, if your dog's jumping on you, just turn your back on it and ignore it. And then the research, the dogs ran around the front and jumped on the front side. In other words, hey, you, I'm talking to you, but you dare turn your back on me. I'm coming around there talking to you whether you like it or not. Uh, so it was like you said, Josh, you had to go stand in a corner so they can't get around <laughs> the front side. But if that is happening, it sounds, Tiffany, again, if, we're, if Bella is fine um, while you're away, it's only a problem when you come home and you've tried ignoring, which is that's why you describe you even lift up your arms. You don't even look at the dog. You are ignoring this animal. And by doing that again, you're trying to go for what's called an extinction module. And they're extremely, extremely, extremely difficult to get done because you have to have the absolute absence of any reinforcer, even a nod, even a glance might be all that it takes, even a grunt when the dog jumps on you. So therefore, they're just not practical for most people to try to go for an extinction module. So I'm going to tell you now we're going to become a little bit more proactive. Um, I would use all sorts of things, everything from off. Don't jump on me. Push the dog off. And if that doesn't work, if you find pushing the dog off, even at a high level, the dog is still coming back on you, then we may need to think about doing something else. For example, lay down. Why don't you lie down? Uh, to kind of deactivate the dog immediately. We could also immediately come in the door, put the dog in a place or in a stay and move away from the dog and create some 
distance. You may have to call upon a remote training call if you cannot physically repel the dog off of your body or to make the dog be quiet. Um, you can try some of these, but one thing I'm going to put out there, if you do try and you do it at a level that's, again, all humane and all fair, hey, I'm just taking it up a notch, another notch, another notch, but I can't seem to find a level in which the dog says, uncle, well, then we do have a problem. Because again, and when you are under a high stressor, if it is a low stressor to a moderate stressor, your cognition is immediately enhanced. However, when it crosses a certain threshold, or now it's a high stressor, or it's a prolonged stressor, your cognition is immediately degraded. And that's how dogs become immune to any sort of training inputs under certain conditions. They're immune to it. You can yell your head off. You can press the remote collar at the highest level it's, it has. You can scream down to your horse, and the dog will not respond. So, again, uh, try a couple of these. Work your way up. Do it the right way. Make sure the dog understands what does down mean, what does stay mean, what does off mean. And then once it knows this, you're clear to move up a little bit in your corrections. When you've reached a certain low level, or you've got your personal level three and you're still not getting any results, then we have an issue that we may have to intervene chemically. In other words, use of chemicals that will stop the brain uh, from reaching this certain point, this point in which I'm now immune to any sort of input. So again, just some standard training, off or down, quiet, stay, try to use these. Ignoring has already proven it doesn't work. So give that a shot. If that doesn't work, get back with me because now we're going to have to intervene and use something to help us get this thing done. Got it. Okay. This one comes from Kelly and she says, my vet recently prescribed an antidepressant for my dog, but I don't want to medicate my dog unless I know more about it. What is an antidepressant? How does it help my dog? All right. So an antidepressant, uh, again, you can go on and Google. Google is going to give it to you in a pretty straight thing, says it helps with depression, so all sorts of things. Uh, let me kind of tell you a little bit just real quickly how it works. Um, when your brain cells, and there are thousands of those in your brain, when they want to influence the behavior of the brain cell sitting right next to it, they send a message to it, kind of like, think about like a text message, but they use a chemical messenger. And those chemical messengers are known as neural transmitters. And your body has hundreds of them. But the four main neurotransmitters that we have been able to utilize and, and basically uh, influence ourselves are serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine, and also glutamate. The antidepressant serves the function of keeping that neurotransmitter in the synapse, because the synapse is that little area, that little gap right between one brain cell's uh, axon terminal, and the other brain cells, dendrites. The, and the dendrites of the other brain cell have receptors. So brain cell number one gets really excited, says, hey, brain cell number two, I'm sending you a message. Out goes these neurotransmitters. They float across the synapse, and hopefully they will bind to the receptors of the other brain cell. But if they don't, and they're in that synapse for a certain amount of time. And again, it depends upon what's going on here. The brain cell that originally sent the neurotransmitter will try to reuptake some of them, meaning I'm going to recycle them. And some will simply percolate into the bloodstream and they will atrophy, atrophy out of the body. They will just go away. You're end up kind of urinating them out at some point. 
So what they, these do is they inhibit the reuptake of these neurotransmitters. So brain cell number one can't pull them back in. I was going to recycle them, but I'm having a difficult time recycling all of them, which means they hang out in that synapse longer. And the longer they hang out in that synapse, the higher the likelihood that they will eventually bind to the receptor of the other brain cell. Again, kind of like going, hey, Joshua. Hey, Joshua. Hey, Joshua. Hey, Joshua. And I scream. And all of a sudden he goes, why are you quite quick? Why are you yelling at me? Well, that's what it does. It keeps the neurotransmitter floating longer in the synapse. And the longer it is there, then the higher the likelihood the other brain cell will pick it up. And if it does, bingo, we just communicated. And we give this to, to mammals, humans and dogs and other animals that we believe that show some sort of behavioral evidence that they are not able to properly assimilate the information coming into their brain. Hence why we came up with words to describe this called paranoid, uh, depressed, suicidal, manic, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, you name it. Because these are brains that simply are suffering from dysfunction. They're just not operating properly. I can't communicate with anyone. No one out there is picking up what I'm trying to put down. So that's how they work. It just in you know, biology, there's type 101, antidepressants 101. Um, and some of these, depending on, I don't know which one it was that you were prescribed, but you know, typically there are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, meaning they're going to focus primarily on the neurotransmitter known as serotonin. And then you have the oldest antidepressants around known as tricyclics, and they will focus mostly on and not allow brain cell number one to reuptake serotonin and norepinephrine. So they concentrate on those two there. But the end result is, hey, when your brain cells can all talk, I can talk to you, I can talk to the other brain cell, then you have a great chance that you can now simulate the information coming into your head. You allow everything to work properly the way that nature intended for your brain to work. So that's what they are. But that's a good question. And it's good of you to always question. So many people, they, they go to veterinarians and they just, the veterinarian says, I'm going to give this, 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 and this. And they say, okay, that's it. You know, how about, but if you went to a doctor and most people, you say, you're going to take this, 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 and this, you start questioning all day long. You go home, what do I have? Why did you give me this medication? What does this medication do? And uh, now, of course, no one reads that long, five-mile long page of side symptoms, you know, that you get from the drugstore when you go to pick up your medication. Do you have any questions? No, I haven't gotten through the 19 first pages yet, uh, but when I do, I'll, I'll let you know. But for the most part, uh, good for you for, for asking that. And know this as well. One last little point on this. Simply giving an antidepressant to your dog, even if your dog's brain warrants an antidepressant, even if we do have a signaling problem between brain cells, typically chemical relief will only cause a finite amount of relief, hence why it's called pharmacotherapy. Many times coping mechanisms that were established to deal with the condition that required the antidepressant are deeply rooted in that mammal. They're deeply rooted. Even if the brain starts talking perfectly, uh, everyone is communicating in the proper way, I still instinctually fall back on this coping mechanism that I, that I developed. And I tell that, that's very pointed out in a blog that I have that's titled Sweet Elsie. 
about the dog that ran to the same closet for seven years. And when the thunderstorm came, the closet door was not open. She tunneled her way through, even though there were three other closet doors that were wide open. She had to get in that closet. And even after we healed her, and I actually, we don't use the word heal in this business, but once we were able to get her to a, a point where she didn't panic like that, there were still many months in which she did go back in the direction of that closet only to be called back and to not try to ram the door down or tunnel through the sheetrock to get to it. So good question. Thank you very much for putting submitting that. That was a good explanation. Thank you. Okay. So this next question comes from a Facebook group and I think it was the balanced trainers group, Okay, but there's a reason that you're going to want to hear it. Okay. Hello, I have a training question. I have been using an e-collar with good success in many areas. Very recently, my 11-month-old dog has started doing this, and I'm wondering if this can somehow be corrected with an e-collar. I take my boy out every morning to go to the bathroom. He pees and poops, then we go inside. Within 20 minutes, he poops again, this time in the house. Peeing has never been an issue until this morning. We went outside, he pooped and peed, and then within 10 minutes, again in the house. I want to correct the behavior, but do not want to use the e-collar to correct this if it is not recommended or warranted. And then they write, please no bashing. I love my boy to death and want what is absolutely the best for him. It is my ignorance that this is happening most likely. Hmm. Hate to key off on that, please no bashing, but uh, we just, that was our last episode. The, that's um, what caught my eye about yeah, this. The, yeah. The pool of mean, because that's exactly what happens. Uh, so many times this, a question like this will be placed in one of these groups out there and, and bam, uh, instead of getting an answer, you simply get bashing. How dare you use an e-collar? How dare you do this? And how dare you do that? Or someone will submit their answer and they'll go, oh no, you're wrong. And it suddenly becomes a battlefield for unprofessionals that walk around proclaiming they're professionals. That is the pull of mean. This is exactly what we're talking about. That's why she had to, she had to put at the end of her, her question, please, no bashing. So, guys, I hope you heed that. No bashing. Leave it alone. So, now to address your question. Many times when you take a dog out to go to the bathroom, okay, you start establishing what's called a routine, predictive information. So the dog goes out, pees and poops, and they go back inside. And within 20 minutes, he poops again, this time in the house. Uh, never been an issue, but now all of a sudden it is an issue. So many times when this happens, we have a change. There's always a change in this mammal. As I said, life at its most fundamental level is nothing more than an exchange of energy for more energy, but it can also be described as in a process of acquiring that energy, it is our adjustment to any change in our conditions. So now the dog goes outside and I'm suddenly, for the first time, distracted. Wow, there's a new smell. There's a different sound out here. There's something that looks a little funny. Either way, now there's a, a mole in the ground. You name it. I'm distracted. So I only partially void. That's what animals can do. That's what dogs are very good at doing because wolves actually use their urine and their scat. They don't waste it. So they had the capability of secreting 10%. You go try that human when you really, really, really have to go potty. Just try and let out 10% and walk away. But they can do it all day, every day. And that's exactly what happens. They go out, they partially void, and suddenly you're saying, well, it looks like you went, so let's go back inside. And therefore, all of a sudden, I get inside, and about 10 to 15 minutes later, I go, um, 
you know what? I think I still have to go. I, sh- I still have to go. I didn't go all the way. Or like even our own dogs, we made the mistake, you know, hey, we're humans, okay? Not perfect. But we made the mistake of suddenly switching our routines and deciding that we would feed the dogs right after we take them out, just like everyone else does. That's very common. Most people get up in the morning. Okay, I got to get ready to go to work. So the first thing I'm going to do is let the dog out because I know the dog has to go potty. And then I'm going to bring the dog in, feed it while I make my coffee and everything else. Well, guess what? If you have any dog that is suddenly or just, just really loves the food, oh, why in the world am I going to stand out here and pee and poop when I can go back inside, just let a little bit out and race in there and get my food? And then when all that is calmed down, now my belly's full and I got a little bit out, uh, I have more to get out. So, you know, a lot of times that's what's happened. There's simply a change in the routine or there's a change in the dog itself. Uh, what I used to not be interested in, I now suddenly am interested in. And all of these can disrupt previous success. And even like you said earlier in the show, Kira, with Poe, if that hair on her muzzle grows to a certain point where it starts to obstruct her vision, she doesn't want to do anything outside. She doesn't even want to go outside, let alone go potty outside. She doesn't. And then some dogs are fair weather poopers and peers. Oh, my gosh, I'll do a great when it's 75 degrees and sunny and balmy outside. But by golly, if it's 45 degrees, no chance I'm doing that. And if it rains, oh, my God, I turn into a cat right <laughs> at that moment. So I'm a kind of dog during the sun, in the sun, but I'm a cat in, when it's raining. And I'm never going to stick my paws on that cold grass. How dare you? Would you really want me to go potty on this? That would describe her, too. Yeah. So <laughs> there's a lot of things that come with that. Yeah. I mean, even I know just changing my dog's food in the past has all of a sudden just been, oh, I, they go outside to poop and then wait, hold on. Why do you, why are you acting like you have to poop even just an hour later? Why you, you, you only go twice a day, but for some reason, this food that we changed all of a sudden, now they're going three or four times a day, which I didn't stay on that food for very long. Yeah. You know, that's a good point. Any sort of change, diet change, routine change, change in my age, all of these can affect the routine, can cause a disruption, but here's what we do with it. I know we can sit there and scratch our heads all day long. Why, why, why is this occurring? Okay, well, let's tell you what. It is occurring, so let's deal with it. I would not use the remote caller for this uh, unless you did it this way. Where again, I don't have an issue with remote callers. We use them. All it is is a haptic signal. When you yank on a leash, you give a haptic signal. When you tap on a dog, you pet a dog, you gave a haptic signal. It's just a form of a haptic signal. The only issue with it is it's not natural, so that you have to do what's called intended pairing with a device. Uh, but you've got to go back to housebreaking 101. And I don't care how old this dog is, housebreaking 101, which means when you come back in, you're not out of my sight. Yeah, I may feed you or whatever, you are not out of my sight. If I have to tether you to me, I'll tether you to me. If I can't watch you, because maybe I do have to get ready for work and I'm going to go shower, whatever. And Joshua, we learned today, he only does that on Wednesdays mm-hmm. uh, for radio show day. <laughs> If I have to do that, I'm just going to go put my dog in a kennel or something, something that can give the dog incentive to not go because, wow, I'm in this tight little space here. But I'm going to do that. If you're going to use the remote collar to correct the dog, and the whole purpose of having the dog in sight is so that you can catch the dog trying to go potty every single time. Because again, here's what they learn. It's not dangerous to go in this house. 
it's just dangerous to go in front of the humans. So they'll, they'll sneak off and they'll go to that guest bedroom you don't ever use in the formal dining room you use twice a year. Not one of those is coming up next week. And that's where they'll go. Not in front of you, not in that kitchen, not in that dining room, not in that den. That, they go off to those other places. Um, so the whole idea behind it is to catch the dog every time. So they, eventually the dog learns. It is always dangerous to go potty in the house. Never dangerous to go potty outside. Cost versus benefit. Um, so again, if you're going to use remote caller to correct, it simply allows you to correct at a distance. Just make sure you say something. I would say no, and I would not press it at a real high correction level to start with. Like all corrections, dial up. Start a little bit lower, go no. And the dog, dang, what the heck was that? Yeah, that was me. And you're not supposed to try and go potty in my house. And then start to dial it up. But please do not use your remote caller at a high level initially and never use it indoors for housebreaking that you don't say anything. Because now, if without intended pairing, your dog does what's called natural pairing. And suddenly, the carpet is bad. It got me. And the chair that I was walking next to suddenly got me. Uh, they will do natural pairing. And all of a sudden, you can find not only does your dog, well, you know, you got a worse problem. Now the dog won't come back in the house. So you don't have to worry about being a poop in, in the house because they won't come back in the house. If you have consistent behavioral issues, if the dog is coming back into the house and pooping every single day, then it's easier thing to fix. If it's kind of here and there, every once in a while it does it, then it, comes, it becomes a little bit more difficult. But back to the housebreaking one-on-one, one important part about this is, is making sure that you go outside with the dog to go to the bathroom for two reasons. One, the dog starts to associate that it's not bad to go to the bathroom in front of you quicker. And two, you have the information of how many times the dog has gone that particular morning. A lot of people make the mistake of just letting their dog out in the backyard and, and they can't actually confirm whether or not the dog peed once, dog peed twice, or even went poop for that matter. Um, but if you're, if you're there watching the dog, then you have that information, which I would then start asking for two poops in the morning. And if you don't get two poops within five minutes or 10 minutes, then immediately just go straight to a crate. That's, I wouldn't even do the whole year in my sights. I would just, okay, if it's that consistent, I'm not going to let you out of this crate until you give me two poops. Well, then I would be in a crate. <laughs> uh, as that. I might as well go to a crate. If it's All right, consistent. guys, we're going to wind up the show here next week. We're going to talk about the, an incident that occurred down in Australia in which a mom and a child were walking their dog on leash and it was attacked by three dogs off of leash. And one of the dogs that was doing the attackers was in the, uh, was killed by the dog unleashed. So, of course, wow. Headlines, uproar, you name it. Blame being cast every which way you can cast blame. Um, we're going to talk about that next week and go over some really more, some more questions that we are not able to answer today. So, we'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you happen to be traveling, going somewhere for Thanksgiving, tune in to us in your car. Again, take, have a great week and we'll see you then. Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join host Brian Bailey again for another edition of Taming the Wild and Your Dog next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Your dog's welfare and your life may depend on it.